Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 59 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach, and I love to support big-hearted educators to prioritize their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. When you hear the word trauma, what comes to mind? For years, I associated trauma with life-changing events like natural disasters, serious injury, violence, or the sudden death of a loved one. And yes, these are traumatic experiences. However, today's guest, Dr. Sarah Woodhouse, shares how we all carry trauma in one way or another and how trauma impacts the way that we work, the way we relate to others, and mostly the way we relate to ourselves. I have chosen Sarah's incredible book, You're Not Broken, Break Free from Trauma and Reclaim Your Life for this month's free book giveaway. Sarah is a research psychologist and a trauma expert who grew up in the UK and after spending time living in Australia with her husband and three children is now living back on home soil. Sarah's research explores how different ways of thinking, feeling and being can affect trauma symptoms and shares practical ways to stop reacting and start living. In this episode, we discuss what is trauma and how it impacts us, how we can identify the signs of trauma in ourselves and others, how we can move from reacting to responding in our relationships and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah Woodhouse. Sarah, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really super excited to be speaking to you. When it comes to trauma, it's a topic that feels so big and so heavy, but you have a way of making it make sense and making it approachable, which is so fantastic. So why do you think it's important for us to talk about trauma? Because it affects all of us every day, literally. Even if, if, even if I am not or you are not reacting within a trauma pattern, so you ha- even if you haven't been triggered by a reminder in your environment of something that happened before and then kind of moved into one of these old patterns, your partner will have been or your kid or your colleague, your employer, you know, it's happening around us. So we all need to understand what trauma is and how it shows up in the people around us because it can really impact our relationships, our careers, everything. That's what I found fascinating in your book, the amount of stories that I had never noticed those patterns of trauma. I just thought that's how people interacted. But as you look through those stories, think, oh, I can see there's a pattern there or I can see that they're getting stuck there or that's really quite intense considering what's happening. So can you give us an understanding of what is trauma? It's basically a reaction. That's essentially what it is. It's it's not the thing. It's not the event. So there's the traumatic event, which is extremely broad and a very, very broad category. And the trauma is the reaction. So it's uh, a reaction to any experience that makes us feel threatened, overwhelmed and out of control or kind of helpless. It's that powerless piece. And it's when all three come together that we see a traumatic reaction that doesn't resolve. Because the traumatic reaction itself is really, really normal. The fight, flight, freeze, that 
we all know about that survival response. Yeah, that's a, that's a normal protective reaction. What we're in, interested in when we talk about trauma is people who've moved into that reaction and haven't properly come out of it. So that's that's really what it is. And and I use those words, feeling threatened, uh, feeling overwhelmed, feeling out of control, because they're words that we can, of course, all relate to. You know, we all, literally everyone listening to this will know how it feels to feel overwhelmed or out of control or afraid, of course. So they're really human words to describe a really quite complicated thing that's happening in our nervous system. Because what's happening in our nervous system is that we've been flooded by all these arousal hormones, uh, you know, cortisol, adrenaline, things like that. And because we feel so overwhelmed, that uh, what should happen with the fight flight response is that it kind of comes up and then it goes down. You know, you've just got that lovely rhythm, that, that, that smooth curve, that bell curve. If you feel simultaneously really powerless and really overwhelmed, i.e. the thing that is happening in front of me is too big for me to deal with. That's cognitively or subconsciously, you've kind of made that decision, that conclusion. Uh, it's not going to resolve. And you're going to kind of end up stuck in it. And, and the nervous system term that we use for that is dysregulation. It's this incredible reaction that begins in the nervous system and it follows through into our thinking, our behavior, our relationships, our life, because from that dysregulated beginning, we end up stuck in these patterns. So we see these patterns time and time again. And it's really interesting, you know, when you actually start looking at these patterns. It's much more complicated, much more interesting, much more unique than just fight, flight, freeze. What we see is, is a really uh, quite complicated array of patterns that lead from this dysregulation, which is essentially the kind of stuck fight, flight, freeze response. I love the way that you conceptualize it because it really makes sense. And it also gives us permission to feel our feelings. And it doesn't have to be, as I say, a big T trauma. It can be small things that we feel like it was too much too quickly and almost like an assault on our nervous system. It's just too much. Yeah, I love that phrase, too much, too soon. You know, that's an important way of conceptualizing it. And I think that's been the biggest shift, I would say. I started working in trauma 20 years ago now. And the biggest shift that I've seen is in that part, is in what actually leads to a traumatic reaction, a prolonged traumatic reaction to trauma. And that's really been where we've seen the most incredible changes, because, of course, 20 years ago, we thought it was just something that happened to, you know, assault victims or veterans. And then we realized, actually, that certain children were, were showing these patterns as well, the similar types of reaction. OK, but they're not in a war zone. So what's going on? And realizing actually that a lot of the stuff, the dysfunctional things that can happen within a home or within a relationship that relate to a parent's capacity and openness and all of that kind of stuff uh, can also lead to a child feeling really overwhelmed, threatened and out of control. So we're suddenly in the trauma zone, even when we're we're just looking at homes, pretty normal homes. You know, but if you think of how quickly and easily children can become overwhelmed. You know, we've all seen that, right? That's just really common. Feel out of control and feel quite afraid. You know, they're common things to feel in childhood, aren't they? 
And then if you take that as a truth, which we all know to be true, right? And then consider the absolute truth that as humans, we are completely reliant on our social network. It's as important, right, as, as our getting our physical needs met. A, a baby can only develop into a human if it's getting that kind of mirrored feedback from a parent, for example. Yeah, does that make sense? So, so, so we're social creatures. That's just, a, a, just a, a fact that our correct, expansive development requires us to be in relationship with other humans, right? Anything that a child feels is threatening the bond, meaningfully threatening, it's not small things, it's meaningfully threatening over time, that bond with the parent is going to push them into overwhelm, they're going to feel out of control, they're going to feel really threatened because it's that bond is so critical to their survival, right? And then suddenly we're in the trauma zone. There's, there's these big T traumas, these shock traumas, earthquakes, wars, whatever it might be. And then over here, there's all this other stuff that's often happening in relationships, often relevant to childhood. And we were seeing the same kind of patterns over time, i.e. the same kind of tra traumatic responses to both types of event. And then this real dawning realization from the trauma community of, okay, it's not, it's not just shock trauma. That is way too narrow of a definition. We need to be looking at all of these. And then what's happening now, this, this real curiosity and interest in, okay, well, how does the traumatic reaction to say war differ from attachment trauma, say, how do they differ? So now, so now we're in that really lovely, nuanced, curious space where we're really able to much better understand the detail of the differences between the traumatic reactions, but trauma, they both are. That's, that's what we've accepted. And this is the nuance that you're bringing to this work, which I think is so powerful because it helps people to understand themselves a little bit better and to start to join those dots. And something that I've been thinking about is how do people understand when they're dysregulated? Because for some people that may feel normal and safe. And that's what I'm noticing more and more in schools that dysregulated is the normal state of being so how can we unpick that yeah that's so interesting isn't it in terms of signs of dysregulation that people can automatically relate to it's much more sensory i think than, than we would expect so for example a real sensitivity to certain noises a sensitivity to there being a lot of people around a lot of sensory inputs coming all at once is a, is a sign of dysregulation um, often being on guard, so really uh, jumpy or, you know, overly reactive, um, irritable. Related to that also is irritability. You've got all the kind of anxiety-like symptoms that are, are key signs. And then the, what's going on in your, in your mind, you know, cognitively. So overthinking, that rumination, you know, when your mind just spirals and spirals and spirals. Um, it, essentially, that's a sign that there's too much adrenaline. You know, and it's so interesting because I, I personally, I, that overthinking piece, I was so proud of it. You know, it got me into my PhD. It was a fundamental part of my personality. And then this very painful realization, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, that actually, oh God, it's not, it's not good. 
That is not a superpower. <laughs> I'm harming my body. It's coming from trauma. It's a sign of dysregulation because I would dive really deep into things and ruminate and wonder. And, but there was always that little aspect of fear. Often there was. It was driven by a need to problem solve and figure things out and find the best solution. So it really linked to kind of all that perfectionism piece as well. So that that real realization that yes, thinking is critical. You know, we need reasoning, we we need rationalizing, but there has to be control around it. We need boundaries, cognitive boundaries. If we're constantly uh, moving into that space, it's it's really a sign of dysregulation. And then also what I mentioned, you know, that perfectionism is a real sign of it. It's, it's hypervigilance. Sorry, it's, it's such a, a a big web. It can feel easy to get lost in it. But at a basic level, what's happening if you're dysregulated is you're going into fight flight very, very quickly. That's happening because you're hypervigilant. So that means you are picking up on threats. And these that's an extremely subjective term, right? The, the threats that I would observe could be uh, my child coming out of the school gates a minute late. And for someone who is not dysregulated, they go, oh, God, that's a pain in the bum. They're, they're a minute late. For someone who is hypervigilant, who is dysregulated, they're likely to view it as a threat and they'll move into some kind of trauma response, most likely panicking about what could have happened. You know, that we all know what that could look like. Could be shut, could even be shut down and freeze, which I certainly used to have around the children. You know, a real kind of, oh God, so I'm panicking internally, but I can't quite respond. I can't get my thoughts together to actually act, basically because my prefrontal cortex has just gone offline. So that's the hypervigilance piece. If we're dysregulated, we will scan for threats. Of course, we'll see them more than someone who is not hypervigilant. And then the pattern just continues and continues and continues. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. And what I'm thinking is that for someone who's feeling dysregulated and then they're feeling hypervigilant, then they're perceiving more threats, then they're probably experiencing more threats. And it's a vicious cycle of constantly feeling like, well, I have to be on guard because look, I just saved that one and I just saved that one. And that example you used with parenting, you know, maybe you're at a park, maybe if you're feeling a bit dysregulated, just watching your child go up the steps may make you feel like, oh, they're going to jump or they're going to fall. Something bad's going to happen. And then you get a little bit edgy and you might get a little bit closer. And then they may sense that, oh, something's happened. Mum's a bit worried. Mum's a bit scared. And then they might trip because it's all a bit much in that moment. And then maybe if we're nice and regulated, there's some space like, oh, I can see that they're going up the steps. They look pretty confident. They've done it before. It's going to be okay. And having that understanding between reacting and responding, can you help us unpick that? That's the centerpiece of it. You know, when we're thinking about parenting, when we're thinking about, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are teachers. It's about learning to respond which first requires all of us to understand when and how we are reacting. And that is hard, but it is the first piece. I run a program um, helping at the moment, it's just women helping women uh, move through these things. And initially I can see a level of skepticism when I'm like, it's all about observation. So much of this will dissipate once you can observe. 
Because when you can observe it, you are creating space. You just said it, defined it so beautifully. There's that space. Okay, so when you observe, you're creating that space. You're also very cleverly in terms of psychologically what's going on, you're de-identifying with the reaction. So rather than just, it's me, I'm reacting, you're here and you can see this piece of you reacting. So you're creating space, you're de-identifying from it. You're not as identified with it. And once that can happen, I mean, really, I I get giddy when I see my clients able to do that because it's like, yes, we're there. Everything rolls beautifully, naturally from that capacity to observe. And if people want to move from reacting, whether it's at home with the kids, whether it's at school as they're trying to teach, that's the first piece is learning to pause. Notice what's happening in your body, in your mind. You know, okay, so what is this reaction? How do I feel it? And it's such interesting work. I I really thought I was great at it. And and actually, I had a real realization probably a year or so ago and was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not doing this in the way that I need to do it. So I was noticing the big reactions, the verbal reactions, but I wasn't really taking notice of what was going on in my system and in my mind. Some of it, the very obvious stuff, but there was a lot going on under the radar. The reason I realized that is because one of my kids was really dysregulated. And I had a kind of, well, why is that? You know, I'm, I'm learning to regulate. I promptly blamed her father, uh, as you do. Um, <laughs> and then a realization, they, they can only regulate in the moment if we're regulated. They take that, the slide example is so beautiful. Mm. You know, that, that's exactly right. The moment they sense, which they will, children are not listening to our words. They are feeling our energy. It is about minute body language, but it's more of an energetic thing. So the moment your child picks up on, okay, mum's heart rate's gone up. She's up here. She's elevated. She's dysregulated. She's panicking. There's something to be afraid of. You know, as I said before, we're social creatures. Their little body is designed to mirror, you know, imagine us on the savannah. Imagine two tigers, mummy tiger pitches a threat, baby tiger suddenly will hop to it. Mum's energy's changed. It's a really similar thing. So that was the realization for me. Okay, my daughter is dysregulated. What's going on? And then realizing, okay, there are multiple moments during the day when even though it looks like I'm regulated, actually, if I'm really honest, I'm as dysregulated as anything. I'm panicking. I'm not present. And then it's okay. No shame to it. It's useful. My favorite phrase with all of this is useful information. It was useful information. I'm not a crap mom. It's just useful information. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really useful information and it gives educators, parents, a real framework to know that their nervous system is like the Wi-Fi in the room Mm. and that even when we think, oh, they don't know, they don't understand, they do. They feel it even before we feel it. They know when we're off even before we know we're off. I know when I've walked into a classroom feeling a bit edgy or a meeting's got in my head or a student issue's got under my skin And then lesson just doesn't go as well compared to when you walk in, you've got space, you've got presence, you're smiling, you're looking for what's going well. It's a completely different lesson. The same thing as getting children ready in the morning when I've got space and time 
we can get in the car without much of a fuss. But when I'm feeling edgy, when I'm feeling behind or running late, then they're feeling edgy and then everything slows down as much as I'm trying to speed things up, it slows down. So it's like the internet goes from that broadband (laughs) internet to dial up and then everybody is really wound up. (laughs) Well, you know, I agree and get it because often I obviously explained my morning with the children, (laughs) which was very dial up. Let's just say that. (laughs) And isn't that a useful language to start having these conversations and not making it as personal just today I'm on broadband or today I'm on dial up. This is where we're at and we're going to have to work with this and just start to notice how am I impacting others? What is sparking this reaction? Where can I pause? And I love to move into the idea of triggers. Can you help us understand what are triggers? Yeah, they are essentially reminders in the environment of something, you know, an old trauma, an experience that was overwhelming, threatening and made us feel out of control. So they are reminders and those reminders can be absolutely anything. Uh, I did a podcast with a wonderful guy. I think he was up in Queensland and he told me that he'd been triggered a few days earlier by a muffin. And I just loved that example because he was he was laughing about, you know, he was fine. He was he was sharing it with. But he told me the story and it made complete sense in terms of what that muffin meant to him. But he said, you know, I was just walking into a coffee shop in the morning, going to get my coffee, going to get my muffin, saw the muffin and then bang, I'd gone, you know, I could panic and, and then eventually into freeze because of the, the associations his body had with a muffin, which took him right back to childhood, essentially, you know, his, his relationship with his mum. So picture that muffin. It can be anything you know it can be a tone of voice it can be a temperature of the air it can be the time of year so the way the light comes through it's the sensory so that that's what we need to remember it's so trauma is you can define trauma lots of ways and I don't use this definition anymore when I'm you know writing about it or having a conversation with a client because it's uh, confusing and a bit abstract but really trauma is an unprocessed memory it is memory dysfunction. So because of all of that overwhelm and what's going on in your nervous system, you can't process information correctly. So you can't find meaning. You can't assimilate what's going on properly. So processing simply means seeing something, then moving through it in a way that changes it so that you understand it. We can't do that if you're really overwhelmed. If you're flooded, your prefrontal cortex is offline and you are not going to remember the experience in a processed way, i.e. you're not going to understand it. And a big part of that is that the sensory information is not removed. So, oh God, it's getting a bit geeky, isn't it? But if I asked you to remember last Sunday, say, you would be able to remember it. Imagine if your memory worked in a way that meant that along with the memory of yesterday, which you have processed, I'm presuming you processed it, you had all the sensory information. Oh my God, we'd all go mad, wouldn't we? So imagine if you dropped into yesterday (laughs) and you could suddenly hear it and we'd all go mad. That's the point of processing. It strips out the sensory aspects of the memory, right? It assimilates it down. We, we move it down into our autobiographical memories. We create a narrative. We apply our own meaning. Do, do, are you with me? Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so this, 
Yeah, so the, the trig- triggers are those sensory bits that have not been removed from the memory because our bodies can't process it when we have that huge level of overwhelm and threat. So that's what a trigger is. You know, in the, the geeky brain bit, that they, it's essentially they're um, unprocessed sensory aspects of the memory that really exist in this kind of odd um, spider diagram almost, that the memory isn't where it should be. It's bits and pieces that are very easily triggered, unlike other memories, which aren't easily triggered. Memories that have been moved down into our autobiographical memory, we can retrieve whenever we want to. If you say to me, I mean, my memory is absolutely bloody awful, but say you were to say, can you tell me about your Christmas? I would have take a moment and then I would retrieve the information. That's not how it works with trauma memories. When we go to retrieve it, it's not quite there. It's there, but it's not quite there. It's this bizarre feeling. And that is because it hasn't been processed. And then this very irritating thing where not only can you not quite get a handle on it, when you go to retrieve it, you also, you're walking about your day, you see a muffin and suddenly you're flooded with the emotion. Because along with all that sensory stuff, of course, the emotion hasn't been, hasn't been removed from the, from the memory as well. So you just have this huge cascade of, of emotional, sensory uh, memories kind of dropping in as if, I don't know, as if out of nowhere. That makes so much sense that something's happened. We've had that reaction to it and we've become stuck. And because it hasn't been processed, everything that reminds us of it, it's like, oh, that's right, that thing I haven't processed. So I'm visualizing my filing cabinet. There are things that are filed away neatly, very few things, but there are things in there that are filed away neatly, but there's a whole heap on top that's to be filed. And so these could form part of our triggers. And every time you see that, oh, oh, right, this thing, it's stuck. I'm not sure what to do with this. I haven't processed this before. So I'm thinking about, for me, something that is a trigger for me is dogs. When I see a dog off a lead, instantly... I can feel my prefrontal cortex just slowly leaving the building where for somebody else it might be going into open water. The idea of going to open water might really have this instant reaction. So once we've had this reaction, how does that go from there? The first piece always is observing. So you can't, I mean, the the fact that you know that every time you see a dog, you're going to get triggered. It sounds like maybe you're going to fight flight. It's not a full freeze response. That right, you're not completely shutting down, but there's a... Well, it depends on the size of the dog. Yeah, fair enough. And particularly if they're off lead, that's like, oh, and I can go into freeze. And then that affects my dog, which is a blue healer, Mm. because he senses me freeze and then he gets more protective. Mm. And then I get more stressed because then I'm putting him in a position to protect me. So if he was to bite someone, then I'd feel bad because I've set up this situation where if I didn't go into freeze and I just walked casually and calmly, he wouldn't be worried because he wouldn't think there's something to be worried about. Mm, such a great example. I, re- I really, really get that. It's so powerful, isn't it? And I love the fact that you're taking responsibility because I think that's also why it's so important. You know, at the beginning, you said, why do we need to talk about trauma? Well, this is why. Because the way we are reacting has an impact, you know, whether it's a blue healer dog or whether it's our colleague, 
we need to take responsibility for what's going on in our nervous system, probably based on past events. I don't think it's a stretch to presume that at some point between the ages of zero and seven, eight, nine, you had an interaction with a dog that made you feel threatened, overwhelmed and out of control. I'm sure I think a lot of people can relate to that. So that's it is it's useful information. But in that moment, no amount of PhD or you know the, the enormous amount of work that I've done around this, when I'm triggered, I still go back to basics. It can still happen to me. And we do this work not to complete. Well, the truth is that as, as you do the work, as you process, often you are triggered less and less. But of course, it, it does still happen. And when it does, when I go into freeze, whatever that might be about, I go back to basics. And that is to do with regulating. For me, I, I find polyvagal breathing incredibly helpful. So my first response, and I would recommend this to anyone, you know, whether it's that open water example, whether it's something with the children, whether it's a dog, first thing we want to do, it's almost all about connecting back to the self. So I think one of the most powerful things that we can do is ideally verbally say three things you can see uh, and then two things you can hear and one thing you can touch. And you're not rushing them off. The idea is to really engage We're trying to almost pull the systems back together. We're trying to get that prefrontal cortex back online. Does that make sense? I I do it. I I really do do it. And it's a simple technique we've known for many years, but but it works because it almost pulls everything back together. One of the first things that I do, although no, I should have said the absolute first thing is to name and notice it. So, okay, I've been triggered. It's so important that you actually say it to yourself. I've been triggered. I'm going into freeze or I'm going into fight, flight, whatever it might be. I've been triggered. Okay. Everything's okay. It's totally normal to be triggered. It, you're, you're trying to dial down the threat. So it's, it's, so it's that compassion piece, really. And then I'll move into the, getting the prefrontal cortex online. And then I'll focus on my breathing, you know, the lovely polyvagal breathing, which really the most important thing that people need to remember is that when we inhale, we activate the sympathetic. We don't want to do that because you've got enough of that sympathetic activation going on. When we exhale, we activate the parasympathetic uh, breathing pattern that I really like is inhale into your belly for four, hold for seven, out for eight. I love that. But doesn't really matter. Don't get hung up on the the actual numbers. All that matters is that you're breathing into your belly and you're extending the exhale. Because as you're extending the exhale, you are rebalancing. That literally is regulating. You're bringing bringing the parasympathetic back online. Maybe that's too much detail, but really that's what it's all about. You name it. You show yourself compassion. You know it's okay. There is no emergency here. I'm just triggered. That's, that's what we're trying to say in that first sentence. So we recognize, okay, I'm just triggered. There is no actual emergency. Everyone's triggered sometimes. Then moving into getting the prefrontal cortex back online, but there's three things you can see, two you can hear, uh, and then describing something you can touch and feel. And then that calming regulation. And no matter the strength of the triggered reaction, that I would hope will move you back into connection and into the present moment. And if it doesn't, that's okay. There's no shame in that. Co-regulation is a real thing. That's what we've been talking about. So if I couldn't 
do that if I realize actually I am completely flooded I, I can't move through this in your wonderful example you've got to cuddle your dog it's I mean it's just so amazing that that we know this but ideally if your partner or someone you trust is there you can give them a cuddle or stand very close to them because what we need as as you have explained our system it has in, impacts others right mine impacts my children's yours impacted your dog well the same in reverse so if we can be near someone who is regulated our dysregulated system is going to move into regulation likewise if you can see your mum panicking as well because of the dog don't go near your mum <laughs> you want to be near people who are regulated who have not been triggered and if that person isn't there animals are incredible the power of animals to help us regulate is so under acknowledged but it's really powerful i think it's really powerful as well because animals have this ability to show this unconditional love to be present they're not thinking about oh, i don't want to go for this walk that's too hard they're just thinking walk great love a walk let's just do this walk they're not perceiving all these additional threats they're just doing it they're in the moment and they have so much to teach us and i think that's a beautiful process for us to start to notice oh i'm triggered this is me i'm triggered when this happens so for example for me when i see a dog triggered okay what can i do I know that my mind is going offline. How can I bring it back online, bring myself back to the present moment, take some breaths, regulate myself, and then move forward? And I think this is what we can do in so many different aspects of our life. Just notice when are we getting triggered? Is it a smell? Is it a time of day? Is it a person? Is it a, too many people in one space? Whatever it is, just start to notice the patterns join those dots and then show that self-compassion to ourselves so we can move forward a little bit gentler and understanding that we're all human, everyone has their things, and then maybe over time we can start to process these experiences and we can eventually put them in the filing cabinet. Yeah, it's so, so beautifully put. And the other thing I would add, I think really important because, I, I, as I've said, I know, I know a lot of your listeners are teachers, and it's, it's, of course, relevant to parents as well, um, and all of us, is that triggers aren't just external. So the moment we realize that, it can be a real game changer. If you are in stress, that can trigger a bigger reaction. So what is going on in your body can move you into an old trauma pattern. And that, that's really important because... What we find with trauma is it's all about disconnection, especially relational trauma, attachment trauma from childhood, that kind of trauma that's developed within a relationship. It's about disconnection from the, the self, which really means disconnection from the body. So we're not really listening. We're not really in tune with what's going on. And I've, I've got this image of a teacher sitting there who hasn't eaten lunch. They haven't got, gone for a lunch break. They're tired. And they're not really engaging with that fact. Does that make sense? So they're ignoring, there's all these stress triggers going on. The kids flood back into the classroom, shouting really, really loud. That teacher who is already in sympathetic activation because they haven't eaten lunch, which is hunger is a big threat to our body, of course, because they're tired. 
which also is because they maybe haven't hit the deadline or they haven't quite done, you know, finished the lesson plan. They're already up there. Yeah. Can you picture that? So they're already. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Very easily. Very easily. Right. Me too. (laughs) Kids flood back in screaming. How do you think that teacher is going to react? Oh, I just want to shut this down. Like this is too much, too soon. This is traumatic. (laughs) I'm feeling powerless, overwhelmed and yeah, too much. It absolutely is traumatic. That is the the piece that is going to push them into that full traumatic reaction, into fight, flight, freeze, and we'll see that cascade. So, yes, we need to observe that trigger point. We also need to get really honest about where we are ignoring our own needs because when we are ignoring our own needs, we're already moving up into sympathetic activation, so it's going to take less and less for us to trigger. You know, theoretically speaking, if we listen to our needs, listen to our bodies, as simple as going to the loo when we need the loo, having a snack when we need a snack, sitting down when we need to sit down. I mean, I, I'm really into this at the moment. I'm addiction to adrenaline, addiction to, because all of these trauma patterns do become addictive. And, and by, I don't, you know, I'm not calling everyone drug addicts, but they are addictive in that what is familiar is comfortable. So we seek it out. Unconsciously, we seek it out. So when I say sit down, I don't mean sit down and it, it requires us to regulate. What we need is to find rhythm, that natural, beautiful rhythm our nervous system wants to find. Of course, we need energy. We need, we need adrenaline, right? We need the up, up, up. So we go up and we come down. But take that teacher who is super stressed and hungry and all of that. They've just gone up, 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 up. And then suddenly there's a moment, pop, the pressure oh, yeah. kicker goes, right? That could be avoided if that teacher, parent, whoever had gone up, noticed they were going up, noticed they needed something, noticed they were becoming, it's all those micro patterns. So becoming almost like we have to become our own project. So what's going on? What are my unique signs that I am going up into sympathetic activation? Am I feeling anxious? Am I starting to get irritable? Am I very sensitive to noises? Whatever it might be, we've all got our own things. Notice and then respond before you pop. That's what it's all about because theoretically, if we can do that, we can find a natural rhythm during the day. That means we aren't going to hit that ceiling point when we then, you know, act in ways that we don't want to. Really, that's what it's about. So it is all about, I'm just so passionate about explaining this, that this whole thing, that there are times when I think learning to regulate can solve pretty much anything. And and I really mean that. There is very little that people bring to me that cannot be resolved by learning to regulate, learning to notice our up and then learning how we can truly bring ourselves down, truly find balance in our system. And that the health benefits are huge, the benefits to the students are huge, the benefits to our kids, our partners, all our relationships, this beautiful cascade of, of health really that comes from that. So that old, almost 90s thing of um, it's not selfish to self-care, you know, it, it, it seems, seems like an old message now. But now I'm doing this work and, and really looking at what's going on in the nervous system. There is such 
profound wisdom in that idea. If we respond to and prioritize our own needs, even if that just means changing our breathing pattern, opening the window, going to the loo, whatever that might be, everyone benefits. It's not selfish. It pays forward in really powerful ways. I love that idea about learning to self-regulate is not selfish. It's essential to relationships and particularly as adults who are caring for young people, it's our responsibility to learn how to regulate our nervous system. And I'm aware of time and you've got things to do, but there's one thing that's niggling in my mind is that for so many of the people that I work with, they feel deeply uncomfortable being regulated. They feel much more comfortable being dysregulated in the rush, going from one thing to the next thing. It's much more familiar to not go to the toilet, to not have the drink, to not do the things, to not listen to their body. And so it takes them some time to learn to listen to their body. Is that something that you find? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can relate to it personally. And yes, in in everyone that I work with, there is resistance to doing this. And then curiosity. You know, that that's the thing I would ask everyone. I just love that word. It's one of my key values is curiosity, you know, moving towards all of this without judgment. Yes, ev- everyone will have resistance. If you've been replicating these patterns over and over and over again, there's every cell of your being, you will have so much resistance to doing the opposite. And it's very tricky because I think so many of us associate pain with work, i.e. I'm only really working hard if I am dysregulated. You know, it's somehow selfish to go to the loo. It's somehow smiling. It's just, we all do it. We all have done it. We all do it. We all know people that do it. You know, it, it is heartbreaking because whether, whether we're looking at a school system, an office or our own home, if we are operating a system and within a system that is dysregulated and promotes dysregulation, i.e. requires us to go a million miles an hour, ignore our needs, not take lunch breaks, requires us to people please, requires us to be perfectionists, then what, what chance do we stand it's almost, I could get so almost evangelical about it because it takes such strength to do this work within a dysregulated system. You know, if there are teachers that are listening, that are rolling their eyes, like, you've got to be kidding me. You seriously expect me to X, Y, Z, you know, do polyvagal breathing or take a lunch break or even self-care. I, I get it. Like the systems are completely working against us. That is just the truth of it. It's extremely painful, extremely dysfunctional. We're not teaching the kids anything, you know. I, I so painfully drop my children off to school sometimes because I'm like, oh, God. And they need an education. For sure they do. And I am very aware of the level of dysregulation within the school system. I, I believe it. I see it. And to anyone listening who is interested, who would wants to make a change, I would say it starts with you. It really does. You know, even if I look at the, my life, by, by me saying no to people, by saying I need to sit down or no, mummy needs 
to go and have a cup of tea and put my feet up that I am modeling. I'm, I'm changing it. That, that, that It's almost like that dropping the stone in the water and seeing the ripple effects. I get that the first time you say, I'm going to take an, a lunch break and go and listen to a podcast. Or I'm going to, oh, the sun, it's just glorious outside. I'm going to go for a walk. I, I get that that is un an uncomfortable thing to do, but recognizing that you are the change that is necessary. Because yes, there may be a little eyebrow raised as you go out to, you know, for a walk, but subconsciously you are giving people permission to hear their needs and then act on them. And all the children that see you do it, you're doing the same thing. So it is so important that we all learn to do it. And I completely understand that there is so much pressure on us not doing it, whether it's in, within our extended families, whether it's, you know, within the place that we work or, or wherever socially, there is a drive to do more, be better, go faster, be stronger and do it all with a smile and some, you know, I don't know, glow sticks, uh, <laughs> but it's not doing any of us any good. So be the, be the change. You know, I know that's so such a cheesy phrase, but oh God, it feels good. And you'll, you'll have a nicer life. Trust me. Oh, I wish I could speak to each of your listeners individually and just convince them of the joy of regulation, of saying no, of self-care, of listening to your body. Uh, it's really powerful. It's really life-changing stuff because we're going to be reducing the pressure, internal and external pressure, and then we can be more present then we have more access to learning because people aren't as stressed and then we can just enjoy our lives. Sarah, I feel like we've just scratched the surface and there is so much that we could talk about and I absolutely love your work and I'm right with you. I believe that if we can learn to regulate our nervous system, if we can learn to notice our needs and then take action for our needs, we would be in such a different place and it does require effort. It requires moving through resistance and there's just so much there. So to wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Oh, yes, definitely. I am inspired by. I am inspired by, oh, so much. But um, the thing that really gets me at the moment that I feel very emotional about is, is women supporting other women. I'm really inspired by that at the moment. I, I see how necessary it is, how important it is. And I'm, I'm seeing it in my own life, this move towards women, supporting other women, often in, in the workspace, I mean, you know, and lifting each other up, trying to change things. So good. When life feels hard. Oh, I don't know. When life feels hard. I mean, I've got to say self-regulate, haven't I? I think that makes sense to me. <laughs> no, let me have a no, hang on. When life feels hard, I mean, the, the, no, the truth is, when life feels hard for me, the thing that I always come back to is uh, this too shall pass. You know, we have to remember that hard isn't bad, hard is normal, and everything passes. It's a shock to me. To, to to really believe that, but I do. I've been through some gnarly stuff in the last five years and somehow everything's okay. 
just always passes. Yeah. Mm. An underrated skill is? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is listening. So I'll go with that. An underrated skill is listening. We're all so good at, you know, taking it. We're not all so good at it, but there's a real emphasis, I think, on um, how to communicate and communicating our point well and public speaking and the art of listening, which requires us to be regulated, right? Really requires us to be in our body, not thinking of what we're going to say, but really taking it in. I think that's probably quite an underrated skill. And I'm looking forward to. Oh, oh, I know exactly what. Uh, I'm looking forward to Halloween because I bloody love it. And I'm so happy it's our first year back in England. Last year we were in Australia. We had a wonderful time. We had an absolutely brilliant time. They went all in on Halloween, but there is something about it being warm that my body was like, oh, this is so brilliant. Oh, I wish it was cold and I was trudging around in the rain. So this year, I'm going to trudge around in the rain with a big <laughs> smile on my face. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for helping us join a few dots and giving us permission to be human and to move forward with a little bit more courage. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, thank you. It's really been an honour and I've really enjoyed it. It's such an interesting topic and you're doing amazing work. So thank you. Sarah's book is called You're Not Broken, Break Free from Trauma and Reclaim Your Life and it's now available online and in store. To learn more about Dr. Sarah Woodhouse's incredible work in the world and her life-changing program, visit her website, sarahwoodhouse.com. If you loved this episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing Sarah's warmth and insight. To go in the draw to win a copy of Sarah's incredible book, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or join the waitlist for the next round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 59. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.